All right. Well, good morning, everyone. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Sean Mortensen. I am one of the elders here at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, honored to be with you this morning. It's open up God's Word and uh, continue our study in the book of Romans. Um, <clears throat> before we fully dive in, uh, one piece of information I want to point out to you, and that is this coming Saturday, uh, the women of Redemption Arcadia are going to be gathering uh, for uh, a time of fellowship and a time of learning at a place called Jam, which is in Old Town Scottsdale. Uh, it's a little historical home. It's kind of by the Valley Ho, right next to Cornish Pasty, if you know where that is. Uh, so 9 to 11 a.m. this coming Saturday, I'm honored to have been asked to speak at this and, and lead a discussion on the intersection of the gospel and culture, uh, which should be really interesting, and I'm looking forward to it. So uh, if you are a woman, and uh, you can still tolerate the sound of my voice after this morning's sermon. I invite you to join us this coming Saturday, 9 to 11. Uh, one more thing on that, and then, and then we'll move on. Um, I know that uh, childcare can often be a barrier uh, for a lot of the moms in our community to attend events like this. And so I'll, I'll speak first to the dads in the audience. Dads, uh, I would strongly encourage you to take responsibility for the care of your kids this Saturday to free up your wife uh, to go to this event and really events like this in the future. Um, yes, I did just put you on the spot. Uh, don't really feel that sorry about it, but I do encourage you to go ahead and have a conversation with your wife uh, and see if that's something that works for you guys. Uh, just a really easy way to bless her uh, and care for her. Similarly, redemption communities, if you guys have uh, single moms in your community or really if you know of friends of friends that someone might want to invite, where childcare would be an issue, uh, maybe kind of rally the troops and uh, find people that, you know, preferably people who are responsible, mature adults that moms would feel comfortable leaving their children with, uh, and uh, volunteer to, to care for their kids and bless the kids and bless the mom this coming Saturday so they could go to this. Good? All right. So Romans 9. Uh, if you do have a Bible, go ahead and open up there. Uh, you heard Lori read our passage for today, and, and she does a, just a, an amazing job at that. Uh, like Frank said, it's a longer passage than we normally do. We intentionally chose a longer passage to both be read and studied this morning, uh, and that's because we felt like there was a kind of a flow of thought that built upon itself that we really needed to get to understand what was being said. There's a greater context that we need to understand here, so um, we decided we're going to take the whole passage this week and study it and, and trace that flow of thought through it, uh, but we also felt like there's kind of two streams going through this passage passage as well. There's two kind of big ideas that Paul's weaving together. And so we're going to take the whole passage this week, and then Frank will be up next week uh, and take the whole passage again and kind of look at it from a different angle. Um, so uh, <clears throat> you heard, if you were paying attention to the text as Lori read it, that this is a can be a particularly challenging text, a uh, particularly controversial one, in that it addresses a doctrine we often refer to as election or predestination, which is, uh, when we talk about election or predestination, we're talking about God choosing who will be saved according to nothing else, no merit, anything, but his good will, his good pleasure. Um, much debate surrounding this, theological debate, even some, some contention, and so it's important for us to address that up front. Uh, for those of you that know my story, you know that <clears throat> I was saved my freshman year of college, uh, which was down in Tucson, Bear Down, Arizona. And uh, so I was saved my freshman year of college, uh, was looking to get involved in a church, but didn't really have any Christian friends at the time. So what do you do when you're looking for a church? Uh, I frankly just drove around the city looking for, I don't even know what, a church building that looked inviting, something just to stand out and say, hey, come check us out and, and visit here. So um, I remember driving around, and I remember a specific one I visited one Sunday morning. Uh, just pulled up. I don't know what pulled me to it. Uh, drove up, went in. It was a church building about this size, probably the same vintage and everything. And I walked in, and it was one of those, like, enter the party record scratch moments where you, you realize immediately that you're not in your element, right? I'm the only person in, the, in that room under, like, 70, okay? And so everyone's wearing suits and just, you know, very pleasant Sunday dresses. And uh, so I walk in the back. I'm a college student, so I'm almost definitely wearing flip-flops and probably just look like I rolled out of bed. So I walk in the back. They descend upon me like I'm the first visitor in that church in like 50 years, right? Um, they're super warm, super gracious, super welcoming, which frankly, we could actually learn a lot from them in that respect. Uh, they welcome me in. I don't remember a ton about the service, 
except that I remember the preacher getting up and starting to talk about predestination. And remember, I'm a, I'm a brand new Christian at the time. I remember him talking about predestination. And I remember thinking two things at the time. I remember thinking, I don't know what predestination is. Uh, and I'm not even sure I care. And number two, that seems like an odd thing uh, to be emphasizing. Um, and what I came to find out is that they spoke about it in such a way where uh, it was almost like uh, that this community, that church, found their identity in this doctrine, in the doctrine of predestination, okay? So much so that, like, it's almost like they enjoyed saying it, like they stood up a little taller when they said predestination, they kind of were celebrating it that Sunday morning. And I remember thinking, boy, that's a very, that's a very odd thing to find your identity in as a church, and now that I'm older and now that I do understand what that means, what that doctrine is all about, um, I still think that's a very odd thing to find your identity in. Um, not only do I think it's an odd thing to find your identity in, I think it's actually a destructive thing to find your identity in. Not just that doctrine of predestination, really any doctrine like it is a destructive thing to find your identity in as a church. Because as Christians, uh, we're not called to rally around uh, ideas, doctrinal ideas, theological ideas. We're, def- we're called to find our identity and our purpose in Jesus Christ, into whose image we are being conformed, okay? And so whatever our theology is, it should not be the thing that we get hung up on. And, and don't get me wrong, um, I'd actually argue for greater theological rigor and greater theological precision in the evangelical church, I think it is incredibly important. But our theology should serve the purpose of almost like scaffolding to build up our faith and build up our understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and how we relate to them. Or maybe put a better way, it should serve as the light to illuminate who Jesus Christ is and how we relate to him and what that means for our lives and give us clarity and kind of hard edges that we can react to and celebrate, okay? But it is not the object of our worship in itself and should never be. That's important for us to remember as as we look at the passage today because um, it's important to note that Paul's not uh, necessarily even championing this doctrine and he's not writing a theology book, he's writing a letter. And that letter has a certain purpose and it's to a certain audience. And the audience that Paul's writing to is specifically Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who are together in the city of Rome, in the church in Rome. And he's writing to them to help them understand who Jesus is and what their relationship with him is and what God's redemptive plan is and what that means for their lives, okay? He's pointing to Jesus Christ with this letter and his articulation of the doctrine of election and predestination serves this greater purpose. It's really important that we remember that and stay focused on that. So let's, let's look at the context uh, that we find today's passage in because it's gonna help us understand exactly why Paul speaks about it the way that he does and why he even chooses the examples that he does in explaining the doctrine. Okay, so if you guys remember everything we've studied up to this point, Romans 1 through 8. I'm just going to take the whole section as this huge section, not that it really, it can obviously be broken down in smaller sections than that, but in Romans 1 through 8, Paul is articulating the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? And the gospel as he's articulating it is kind of new revelation for a lot of people. It's new revelation and and it's sort of changing the way they think about it and it's kind of challenging their paradigms a little bit um, because he's articulating the gospel of salvation through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for all the nations. Okay, all those are really important elements of what he's articulating. The gospel of faith alone, saved through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, sufficient for our salvation, for all the nations. And the way he's articulating that is especially going to press upon the Jewish community there because they've operated for thousands of years with a certain understanding of what it means to be God's chosen people and what it means to find God's favor and how you find God's favor. So as Paul's articulating this, he knows that it's going to challenge them and he knows there's going to be questions and he anticipates pushback and challenges to what he's saying. And when we get to Romans 9 through 11, which is where we are today, he's taking this section of the letter to kind of address some of those questions. He's anticipating the pushback, anticipating the confusion, saying, I'm gonna address some of those questions. And he's, he's set out to show in this Romans 9 through 11 uh, that this gospel that he's been articulating in Romans 1 through 8 has always been God's plan from the beginning. God's not 
uh, renegotiating his promises, God's keeping his word. It has always been God's plan. It has always been how God has operated. And this gospel story that Paul's articulating, he's showing is consistent with the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew story. And our clue to that is in verse six, where he says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. He's making a connection and he's gonna go into this saying, look, here's how everything I'm saying relates to everything you already knew. Not only that, here's how everything I'm saying illuminates everything you already knew in a fuller sense. And there's a special emphasis in his dialogue here in Romans 9 through 11, anticipating his audience of both Jews and Gentile Christians. And we say Gentile, it's simply uh, non-Jews, right? Uh, everyone else in, outside of Israel. Um, Jewish and Gentile Christians coming together and anticipating that audience and a special emphasis on God bringing those communities together, bringing them together to form a new people, together in harmony and restoration. Okay, so as, as we start to read this and we start to see how he articulates this doctrine, uh, that context helps us understand why he's choosing the examples he is and, and gives us a, kind of a deeper sense. A lot of what I just said is what Frank will articulate next week, but it's important for us to know as we move forward and unpack our text for this morning. So uh, let's go ahead and dive in. Romans 9, 6 through 8 says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise counted, are counted as offspring. There's a whole um, uh, Old Testament story uh, found in Genesis here that would immediately come to light when Paul references this. Okay, so particularly the Jewish audience in Rome would immediately get the full context of what he's saying and all the pieces of the story that Paul's referencing. Um, in short, it's this, God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. That promise continues, that covenant continues to unfold and unfold and it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if you know anything about the story, that Abraham is old, he and his wife are old, they don't have any children, God comes to him and says, you're gonna have a child, not only a child, you're gonna have children and I'm gonna multiply your descendants and you're not even gonna be able to count them and through your lineage, through your offspring, all of the nations of the world will be blessed, okay? So there's a lot of details to this story, but for this morning, it's important to realize that we wanna focus in on the two sons of Abraham because they represent two different things and this is the point that Paul's making. The first son, Isaac, Isaac is a fulfillment of the promise that God made. Abraham was so old, it was naturally impossible for him to have a child. And he was, they were laughing and almost not believing God when he said, I'm gonna give you a child. Isaac is the fulfillment of that promise. And that takes on even fuller meaning as you understand the, the whole context of that story. Isaac is the fulfillment of God's promise. Ishmael, Abraham's other son, is the fulfillment of Abraham getting nervous that perhaps God uh, will not keep his promise or God is uh, not powerful to keep his promises. It's basically uh, the fulfillment of Abraham trying to take things into his own hands. You have two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, the fulfillment of God's promise, the fulfillment of blessing, the fulfillment of God's power, his will to bless Abraham and his descendants. Isaac represents that. Ishmael represents Abraham trying to take things into his own hands. We move on. Romans 9, 10 through 13. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Okay, uh, this language loved and hated obviously sort of elicits kind of a visceral response from us, right? It's really strong language and appropriately so. And, and frankly, it's, it's not my role to soften that language uh, being that it's God wor God's word. But it, it is helpful for us to understand exactly what's being said there, okay? Uh, we should not think of this love-hate language necessarily as emotions, that God is uh, in his heaven uh, having fond feelings for one and having just seething rage for another one. 
It's better understood as God bestowing his favor upon one and not the other one. God choosing one and even rejecting the other one. That may not be comforting to you, but it's probably a better understanding of what's being said here. So what is being said here? Paul is pulling in these stories. He's already referenced Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, three patriarchs of the Jewish faith. He's pulling in these stories to reference these specifically to show this is foundational to the understanding of the Jewish people. He's, he's not pulling in uh, sort of obscure passages, right? He's not like, I have this point I want to make. I'm going to search through the scriptures to find some random text and maybe some other author's quote to help me make my point. He's saying, I'm going to go right to the heart of the Jewish identity. I'm going to go right to the heart of the redemptive plan of God as it has been laid out in scriptures thus far. And I'm going to show that this is how God has always worked. His blessing and his promise is found in his will. And his purpose of election is happening independent of the credentials of who he's choosing. His purpose of election is happening independent regardless, not even looking at the credentials of the people that he's choosing. Theologian Douglas Moo puts it this way. The reason why some were included in the people of God and others were not was that God freely chose some and did not choose others. Physical descent, these stories show, was not the crucial qualification. In the same way, Paul implies, belonging to the new covenant people, which is the covenant that we have in Jesus Christ, salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, belonging to the new covenant people of God is based on God's free choice and is not a birthright. It was God's will alone and not natural capacity, religious devotion, or even faith that determined their respective destinies. Jacob's being the younger of the two makes it even more clear that normal human preferences had nothing to do with God's choice. That last section, uh, that last statement that he makes is in reference to the actual story, okay, of, of Jacob and Esau that we find in the book of Genesis, where uh, Esau is actually the older of the two sons right? And so if they're just born, they haven't done anything good or bad yet necessarily, right, for us to judge on, um, and yet God is choosing to favor one and not favor the other, we're like, okay, is there something we can latch on to here? Is there some matrix, uh, something that helps me understand why one would have favor and not the other one? And in natural human terms and natural human preferences, we would, we would say, okay, the only thing we have to go by here is birth order, and naturally, the way it plays out in many societies is that the firstborn has a favored uh, position, right? So naturally, we would say, okay, we'll choose Esau because they haven't done anything. We'll choose Esau because he's the firstborn, uh, but that's not who God chooses. That's not who God chooses. So he says, Jacob's being the younger of the two makes it even more clear that normal human preferences had nothing to do with God's choice. It's purely according to his good pleasure, purely according to his will whom he chooses. Now, Paul anticipates pushback in his audience to this, and I anticipate pushback from this audience on this because this is, this is there's tension here, right? We wrestle with this quite a bit. It, it feels unfair. I was talking to someone between services who was in, uh, heard the first sermon, um, and she's like, I get it, I just don't like it right? And she's, she's wrestling with it. She has this inner turmoil that God would just freely choose whom he wills. And we talked about how it's just so natural for us to relate to each other in this sort of transactional manner, right? This merit-based transactional culture, society relationships that we have. That feels right to us. It feels like we can get our hands around that. It has handles on it. It makes sense. We can work towards it in that system. You know, we can plan on it. We, it just, it, it feels natural to us. And the challenge is because that feels so natural to us, we will always, always, always gravitate towards works-based salvation and trying to earn our salvation, trying to earn our favor, trying to jump through some hoops, trying to prove something to God so that we deem ourselves worthy 
and put him in a position to respond to us. See, I met your standard. See, I did these things. Now you gotta give me the reward because I rate better than my peers. We wanna earn it so bad. We want some handles. We want some control over it. Grace is the hardest thing in the world for us to grasp and for us to accept. And if we don't constantly remind ourselves of it, we will fall into this trap of works-based salvation. And so we see so many faith systems, even those who call themselves Christian, will slip into a works-based salvation mode, slip into a merit-based salvation and say, okay, here's some things that we can do to set ourselves apart so that we will be the favored. And as Paul's telling us here, that, that, that's not how that's, this works. That's not how God works. That's not how grace works. And yet there's this internal tension for us in that because we want to earn it so bad or we want to pay it back so bad. And it may feel unfair because, because you, you just don't understand. It may feel unfair. This God's choosing of whom he wills. But may I suggest that it is the best news we could possibly hear. Because the truth is, if God were gonna choose us based on our own merit, none of us would have hope for salvation. We forget our condition as fallen human beings that we are hostile to God in our natural state. And we forget that we don't have the ability to earn ourselves. We don't have the ability to set wrong, set right what, what has been made wrong. We don't have the ability to save ourselves. We think, God, if you just give me a chance, I'll earn it, I'll earn it. We forget we, we've lost the capacity to do that. And so if it weren't for God choosing whom he wills according to his good purpose, not according to our merit, none of us would have any hope at all. We wrestle with it because it seems unfair, but it is the best news we could possibly hear. Well, like I said, Paul anticipates the pushback as well. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So Paul brings another heavy hitter into the argument to prove his point. Now bringing Moses into the equation. Obviously, you know Moses, uh, who God chose to lead the nation of Israel uh, in the Exodus. Um, and the context of this quote that Paul references is incredibly important for us because the quote is found in Exodus 33, where Moses is interceding for the people of Israel before God, saying, God, you've called us out of Egypt. You've called us into this land. Please don't depart from us. Please don't leave us. We can't go on without you. And the reason he's pleading with God like this is because that, that section of scripture comes immediately after the golden calf incident, which you probably know. It's the section where Israel has been redeemed. They've been saved out of Egypt and Moses goes up on the mountain to talk to God. And while he's gone, the people become restless and they build for themselves another God to worship. They just got saved out of slavery. They're now in a place where God is establishing his will for them. And they grow impatient and they start complaining and they make an idol for themselves to worship. And so Moses goes before God and says, God, please don't leave us. Please don't leave us. And God's response, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And he has compassion on the people of Israel. And he has mercy on the people of Israel. There's judgment too, but he has mercy on them. He's chosen them. So what does this tell us? Again, when God has mercy, it is because of his choice, not any merit. Israel earned nothing. They, didn't, they, they weren't obedient to the law at this point. They didn't even have the law at this point. There's nothing they did that caused God to favor them. God chose them of his own will and he chose to have mercy on them. And in fact, if it shows us anything, it shows us that God saves complaining idol worshipers, right? If that story teaches us anything, which is good news for us again, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Let's remind ourselves here again that we're talking about God's mercy 
here, okay? We're not talking about just rewards. We're not talking about due wages. It's not God saying, I will give to those who I will their due wages. I will give this person the due wages if I will. I will give this person due wages. He's like, I will give mercy to whom I will. I will give grace to whom I will. Remembering again our fallen state and our condition separated from God, hostile to God, what we truly deserve. The due wages that God would give us is death. Scripture tells us, Romans tells us, the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. God's not saying, I give due wages to who I will and I give due wages to whom I will. He's saying, I give mercy to whom I will. That's what we're talking about here. He is giving blessing we don't deserve. He is giving us grace when we deserve the opposite. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. It depends not on human will or exertion, but upon God who has mercy. And you might ask the question here, doesn't scripture say that uh, God desires all people to be saved though? And in fact, it does. Paul says that in uh, his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy And I think that that is a truth uh, that we see in scripture as we see God longs for the restoration of all things and calls all people to a knowledge of himself, calls all people to turn from the idols that are leading them away from him and into destruction and back to him so that they can receive life and commands all people to follow him. God desires all people to be saved. Um, But here's the tension that we have to wrestle with and really everybody has to wrestle with. It is true that God desires all people to be saved but it's also true that not all people are saved. And scripture is very clear about that as well. So, so that's a tension, right? What do, what do we do with that? I think it's a tension that we see even in Jesus in his earthly ministry where you see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem and weeping over the lost, but very clearly talking about those who are his and those whom the father has given him and those who are gonna come to him and be accepted and those whom he will cast aside, right? There's that tension even, even in the person of Jesus who himself is God incarnate. And we see the character of God in him. So what, what's going on here? If God desires all people to be saved, but, but not everybody is saved, is it that God desires something that he doesn't have the power to see through? And certainly that's not the case. I mean, God, the creator of all things, who has power over everything in heavens and on earth, who is the beginning and end of all things, he, he does what he wills. It is, it's not a lack of power. And some would argue that, well, I think this is true actually, that um, yes, God desires all people to be saved, but he desires something else greater. There's something else that needs to take precedent. And some would say that what God desires greater than for all people to be saved is for him to be able to preserve human choice. That he doesn't want to just, that he wants all people to be saved, but he's not just gonna override their choice and get them all in the barn, you know what I'm saying? Um, I think that that is ultimately unsatisfying because what that suggests is that, again, God desires something, but because of human beings, he's incapable of seeing it come about, okay? It puts human beings in a position to completely thwart what God desires and God just being in a helpless, like, sorry guys, I'd really like to see it happen, but I just, I can't, You guys are too powerful, right? Your will is too powerful. I think that's ultimately unsatisfying. And so what I think is more accurate to scripture is the fact that yes, God desires all people to be saved, but he desires something greater and that something is his glory, which he is 100% justified in prioritizing because he is the creator, the beginning and end of all things. And specifically what he wants to preserve is his glory as it is manifest in power and judgment over sin. And as he manifests that power and judgment over sin, it exemplifies, it it puts on display his power for those who would be drawn to him and saved through him, okay? This may not ultimately be more comforting to you, but I think that is what's faithful to the biblical text. And I think we see it in the next verse and we'll see it again in the the last verse we'll study, uh, 21 through 24. Let's continue. Romans 9, 17 through 18. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up so that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, a little tough, but here's the truth. God is not passive in accomplishing his purposes. Um, Specifically, his purpose, as he's outlined here, is for his name to be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, calling people away from the gods, the false gods, the idols, who are pulling them away from him and leading people into destruction. He needs his name, his glory to be proclaimed in all the earth so that people are called back to himself and he is not passive in accomplishing his purposes. He is not passive in seeing that come about. The question is, okay, if he's not passive in accomplishing his purposes and he uses Pharaoh in this sense, if he raises Pharaoh up for that purpose, are we, are we simply uh, just pawns or, or robots that God is messing with, just kind of moving the pieces around? Are we, are we just to think of ourselves as kind of toys on a board that God is moving around for, for his glory? To answer that question, I, I think we need to zoom out a little bit and we need to bring creation and the fall into view. Okay, God has created us with a rational and moral will. He gives us a responsibility as human beings right away, okay? And scripture is full of pleading and instruction. He treats us as creatures with a will. Um, and we make willing choices with real effects, right? You and I make willing choices every day, every moment, and they have real consequences and real effects. And we are held accountable for those choices, Scripture is very clear that God holds us accountable for our actions and treats our actions as though they are to be held accountable for. But our choices are not free and autonomous in the sense that they are outside of God's sovereignty. Does that make sense? Our choices are not free and autonomous in the sense they are outside of God's sovereignty. Um, I had a professor who was fond of asking this question, which I think is brilliant and makes the point well. He would say, uh, did you choose to be born that should give you some clue to exactly how autonomous you are. I think that's true. So we're not outside of God's sovereignty and we are never free in the sense that we are outside of forces that impact and shape our decisions, right? We like to think of ourselves as these sort of uh, isolated free creatures and every option in the universe is open to us at any given time and we can go any direction we want and choose anything we want at any given time and we just, it's just all about us choosing the infinite options that are before us and we're just free to float in space any, any direction we want. And of course, we've talked about that many times here. That understanding of freedom is an illusion. It's a fallacy. There are unbelievable number of forces, things impacting us, things shaping us that direct our choices and direct our decisions, including what clothes you chose to wear this morning. And the third thing, and this is a huge one, is that our rational and moral will has been corrupted by sin and is in bondage to sin. It's hostile to God apart from the Holy Spirit entering us and transforming us. So we're rational beings, we're moral beings, we're making free choices with real consequences, but there are numbers of forces playing on us and not the least of which, in fact, the most important of which is our own will, which is corrupted and in bondage to sin, short of God breaking that bondage for us. So God's gonna accomplish his purposes with human beings whom he's created a will, to have a will. How is he gonna use human beings then? Well, he's gonna do one of two things. He will either give you over to the sin that you choose, which is Romans 1. He will either give you over to the sin that you choose, or he will, in his mercy, break the bondage to sin and transform your rational and moral will so that it turns back to him. He will either give you over to sin or he will transform you in his mercy. And he will use either one. He will use both to accomplish his purposes. And we see that all throughout scripture. Uh, Sean Myers referenced it a few weeks ago when he brought up the Joseph story where Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. Everything goes bad. At the end of the story, Joseph realizes what you meant for evil, what you and your will meant for evil, God meant for good. He's using it to accomplish his purposes. And it's important to realize as we view this, that God is not, uh, he's not about simply just mechanically getting human beings from point A to point B, right? It, again, like I said before, it's not about just kind of, I just wanna override 
human beings, cognitive abilities, and just get them into the barn, right? It's, he doesn't treat us uh, like an inanimate object. It's not about just moving us from one place to the other. He's restoring fallen earth. He's restoring fallen human beings from within. And he's accomplishing his purposes through that process. Dutch theologian Herman Boving puts it this way. He does not treat human being he has created as though it were a stick or a stone. His will is the will of a merciful and kind father who never forces things with brute violence but successfully counters all our resistance by the spiritual might of love. The will of God is not a blind, irrational force. It is will, wise, gracious, loving, and at the same time, free and omnipotent. He wants to deliver us from all the error of sin and to restore our rational and moral nature in its wholeness and soundness. That make perfect sense? It's okay to say no. Probably doesn't, right? Because there's tension there. There's real tension there. And Paul anticipates your angst. Verses 19 and 20. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? If you've been in any one of the membership classes I've taught, you've heard me describe this passage as the most ironically comforting passage of scripture. And here's why. My my modern mind really wants Paul to just break this all down for me in simple terms and kind of categorize everything so that I can see it on a flow chart and I can put it on my shelf and I can feel like it's resolved and it's all wrapped up nice and neat and I know the terms and I know how they relate and I know the formula. I, my modern mind wants that so bad. I feel like I don't have resolution unless I get that, unless you answer all the questions. And it's almost like Paul's building to that, right? I'm at this question, then this question, and I'm anticipating everything, and I'm going to resolve all of them, and I'm going to resolve so that it's completely exhausted. We'll have full understanding of what's happening here, but he feels no burden to fully resolve it for me. He feels no burden to fully resolve it for his audience. He drives at these questions. He anticipates response. He acknowledges the tension, which is to me, this is where it's comforting to me, validates that there's tension, right? Like it helps me understand I'm not just missing something, okay? Because I I read through this and I feel like, okay, God, I'm still not sure that I, I get it. I'm still not sure that I understand how my will relates to your will to accomplish your purposes? As, and do I have freedom and in your, how, how, do those, how do those two things relate? And I feel like I still have questions and Paul acknowledges that there's angst there, which helps me realize I'm not just missing something, which helps me realize I didn't read it and there was like a key verse that I glanced over that would have solved the whole problem. Paul addresses it and leaves it in tension. He leaves it in tension which validates the fact that there is tension and validates the fact that I didn't just miss something. Paul is absolutely content to leave the mechanics of this in a cloud of mystery. And we don't do very well with mystery. We don't do very well with tension. We, we want everything wrapped up. We want everything scientifically broken down and charted. We want black and white. We don't deal well with tension. So there's angst because it feels like there's not resolution here. But I want to suggest that it is a good and appropriate thing for mystery to be a part of our faith. It is a good and appropriate thing for mystery to be a part of our faith because the truth is, we have a gracious God who has chosen to reveal himself to us, to be known to us. And really clue us in and a lot of his workings and how he goes and understanding his character and what he's doing in the world. But he reveals in part and we see in part. And the smartest thinkers, the smartest theologians that have ever lived for the past thousands of years all arrive at the same place at some point. They arrive on their knees at mystery where they, they chase ideas. They ch- let, me, let me figure this out 
every single one of them has arrived at the place of mystery. They arrived at the limit of their own understanding. And I would suggest that's a good place for us to be a lot of times. And if you sit here thinking like, oh, well, I've got, I've got everything. It's just systematically worked out and everything's perfect and there's no gaps. Uh, there's no tension. Um, it's just, it's, it's very clear and it fits neatly and I can put it on a shelf and articulate it on a napkin sketch. Um, if you feel like you have every detail of everything worked out and it's clean, I would suggest you're worshiping a man-made construct and not the living God of the Bible. Because we are drawn into relationship with a transcendent God. Yes, a God who's chosen to reveal himself to us, but a transcendent God. So, so let me... Let me remove the burden from you if you feel like you have to have everything figured out. Let me remove the burden from you if you feel like my faith isn't valid unless I have all these hard theological questions worked out, okay? Because the most brilliant minds in the history of the church didn't have everything worked out. The only person who has ever lived who knows how all the dots connect is Jesus, And he spoke in parables, so we're all still a little confused in terms of what he was saying, right? It is a good and appropriate thing for us to live with mystery, and everyone does, Christian or not. We ought to learn to embrace it and appreciate it. In fact, I think that um, we've lost our sense of mystery in the evangelical church and perhaps with our loss of mystery, we've, we've maybe lost, maybe it's a chicken and an egg thing, which came first. We've lost a bit of the transcendence of God. And I think when you lose the transcendence of God, you lose some humility before God. And perhaps even we lose some of the Christian imagination along with it. And so I think it's appropriate for us to embrace and appreciate mystery. And of course, we don't, we don't use mystery as an excuse. We don't say, yeah, I, I know there's things to know, but mystery, you know, we press in and we try to learn what God has revealed himself. But it's, it's, more, it's more about our posture. It's more about our posture, which brings us to the last section as well. Verses 21 through 24. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his mercy and to make known his power, this is what we talked about earlier, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Creation is brought back into view here, uh, specifically the relationship between God as creator and us as creature. This is the transcendence we're talking about. And it's appropriate for, God, for Paul to bring creation into view here and that relationship because it has the effect of humbling us. A verse like this puts us in our place, right? It puts Paul's audience in our place. And I would suggest in our place is exactly where we need to be. And I would suggest that it's in God's mercy that he puts us in our place. Because human beings, we can have this tendency to come out from our place and to assume this position as God's peer or God's judge. We've been doing it since the fall. And we we assume this position as God's judge and we say, God, you have some explaining to do. And don't get me wrong, there's an appropriate wrestling with God in scripture. We see it all through the Psalms where the psalmists say, God, I don't understand what's going on here. Help me understand. And they always ultimately come around and say, God, I don't understand, but you are good and I trust you and I still wanna know what's happening. Please meet me, please help me understand, but I trust you, you are good. There's another posture that comes out from underneath God and says, God, I'm gonna judge you as your peer or your judge. You have some explaining to do because I don't understand what you're doing and I think I have a better plan. And we see this numerous times in scripture and each time God enters in and humbles humankind, humbles the people and it's in his grace that he humbles us because our place is exactly where we need to be. There's an example of this in the book of Job. 
You know the story of Job, where Job is wrestling with these things and saying, God, I think I have a beef with God. And he gets this bad uh, advice from his friends. And they say, God, you should really go talk to him. You do have a beef. You should challenge him. And so Job goes to God and challenges God. And God says this to him, dress for action like a man. And I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. And if you know this chapter of Job, you know it goes on and on and on. Job comes out from underneath God, assumes a position as his peer or his judge, and God says, in my mercy, I'm gonna put you back in your place, Job. Because coming out from under God, thinking that we know better and judging him is the root of all of our human hardship. Coming out from under his authority, rejecting his will because we think we know better, Believing the worst about him is the root of all human hardship and has always been. It is the root of what happened in the fall when sin and death entered the world. Our place is exactly where we need to be and in God's mercy, he puts us there. And Paul does not approach these issues, predestination, election as God's peer or God's judge. He approaches them in humility, under God, from within God's story, really feeling no need to justify God's actions because of that. And so he says this just a couple chapters later in Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift, given a gift to him that he might be repaid for, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And it's in this posture that we wrestle with even the hard questions that we have still. Like, God, why, why have you not chosen to reveal your mercy and your grace to this person that I care so much about? God, Why? And it's in this posture of humility. It's in this posture of understanding God's authority. It's in this posture of understanding God's unsearchable wisdom that we seek answers and we cry out to God with an appropriate posture. And how else are we supposed to respond to this? How do we respond to this? I would say this. For those of you who are here this morning and um, you're not yet at a place where you would confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, but you're wrestling with this. And you're wondering, well, what does it mean? What does it mean to be elect? How do I know if I'm elect? What does it feel like to be elect? Is there like a, does something change? How do I know? I would encourage you, don't get hung up on the mechanics of it. Don't get hung up on the mechanics of election, the pragmatics of election, predestination, what it feels like, how you're supposed to know. I would just simply say this, just believe. Just believe. Great Father, Church Father Augustine said, God does not choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. And if you feel compelled and drawn to Jesus Christ, that he is who he says he is, that he is Savior, that in him we have hope and he is the only hope of this world. If you feel drawn to him this morning and compelled, simply believe and we'll celebrate with you. We will celebrate with you. And for those of us who are here this morning who Um, confess Christ and are sure of our faith, I would say this, I would have this word. Don't become arrogant in your position. In fact, this is one of the critiques Paul is gonna have both to the Jews and the Gentiles in Romans 9 through 11. Don't think you've earned it. Don't become arrogant. Don't become privileged. Don't feel entitled. Don't be hardened by this doctrine. In fact, we ought to be like Paul not hardened, but softened by this doctrine. And let's not forget the passage of scripture that we read last week, the section that comes right before the passage we just studied today, Romans 9, one through five. Do you remember what it says? It talks about Paul's anguish for his lost Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul understands this doctrine of election and predestination, but it doesn't harden him. It doesn't make him cold. It leads to an anguish that the people he loves and the people he cares about would know it as well and be chosen and find God's mercy and find God's grace. And I'd also say this, it drives Paul 
to go on mission for God in bringing the good news of the gospel. Paul doesn't say, oh God, you, you choose people uh, apart from merit or apart from even my ability to articulate? Okay, so I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna sit here then if that's cool. God, you got it. Just save who you wanna save. I'm just gonna hang back and watch some more TV, right? Paul doesn't have that at all. In fact, in this letter, even in Romans, Paul's talking about going to Spain to bring the gospel all the way there. Paul is driven because of the mercy of God, given to whom God wills. Paul is driven to participate in that act of God, that redemptive work of God. He said, God, you're saving people and you have the power and you are going to save people. I wanna participate in that. I wanna honor you in making your word known. And Paul is going. Paul is going to bring the good news of the gospel. And we ought to do the same. And I would say we ought to pray because it is God alone who saves. Let me remove this burden from you as well. It is God's will who saves, not their merits and not your ability to articulate the gospel in some super profound way. God just calls you to be faithful and be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have and to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. Speak what you know, speak about the hope that you have. The power is in God to save that person, to save your neighbor, to save your family member. Let me remove that fear and that burden of opening your mouth to speak about the beauty of Jesus Christ and the grace that we have in him. And if God chooses to use your words at that time, he will use your words at that time for it's God who saves. So we pray. We pray that God would for the people that we love, the people we care about. We pray that God would save them. We pray that God would reveal his mercy to them. And lastly, say this. We have to find comfort and joy in this doctrine. We find comfort and joy in this doctrine because our future hope is in the hands of an all-powerful God who is strong to accomplish his purposes. Again, Douglas Moose says this, if God's plan depended upon the vagaries of sinful human beings for its continuance, then indeed God's word would have fallen to the ground long ago. But God's purpose in history is fulfilled because he himself elects people to be a part of that purpose. And so we trust that God's promises are true and he is faithful to fulfill them. And we rest in that. And we rest in knowing that our salvation is assured because it's in the hands of God, not our own hands. And we know that the world is not as it should be, but God is making it right. And so we don't trust in any powers. We don't trust in any people, schemes, administrations, trends, whatever it is. Those things are great and God will use them. We don't trust in them and them alone to set right what has gone wrong in the world and bring us into eternity and make everything as it should be. We trust in the power of God alone who is faithful to accomplish his purposes, who is good, who is sovereign, and our hope is secure and our salvation is secure. And so we rest in that and we celebrate that.